since Easter Sunday, we've been looking at questions related to this idea of evidence. Um, is our faith well-founded? Is there good reason for us uh, to believe? And so Easter Sunday, we started into the series attempting to examine the evidence uh, for the resurrection, uh, the truthfulness around the resurrection of Jesus. And, and this idea that um, there, there were these individuals who, who saw Jesus dead and then saw him alive three days later. And what was up with that? And, and those who encountered Jesus, their lives changed. And we've been trying to tell some stories from our church family of those who continue to encounter Jesus and have changed. And so Rob and Cindy shared a bit of their story with us on Easter Sunday. Last Sunday, we considered the evidence for changed lives, specifically how it is that your life becomes evidence of the presence and the truthfulness of God as we see life change. And Sam and Blanche shared their story with us and we baptized them. And if you are a follower of Jesus and have not been baptized, we would be delighted to baptize you. Talk to us about that, that we can set that up and, and organize that. People's lives are touched and changed. And then this morning, we're going to pull back from that very personal view of kind of how, uh, how Jesus impacts individuals' lives. And we're going to ask a little more philosophical questions as we kind of pull back from that, that up-close and personal view and move back to a, a grander view. And, and Dr. Helen Zwanpol's helping us a little bit. We're going to come back to a couple of things that she said uh, this morning. Uh, but we're going to consider the evidence that addresses the fundamental question of is there evidence that supports the notion of God himself? On what basis do we, do we think of that? A.W. Tozer, the late A.W. Tozer, wrote, All of the problems of heaven and earth, though they were to confront us together at once, would be nothing compared with the overwhelming problem of God, that he is what he is like, and what we as moral beings must do about him. What do we do with this question of God? It, it, it's, it's the fundamental question of life. Dr. Alvin Plantinga is regarded as one of the world's leading living philosophers today. He points out and addresses what he says are over two dozen uh, philosophical arguments for the existence of God. Um, Immanuel Kant, in the late 1700s, boiled it down to two. Um, he said, the moral law within and the starry hosts above are, are that which most profoundly lobby for the existence of God. In other words, the anthropology and the cosmology, the, the human being and the, the stars, the systems of, of, the, of the universe. So this Sunday, we're going to look at the first of those two. We're going to look at anthropology, human beings. How is it that a human being's life, that your very life gives evidence of, speaks to uh, the idea that there is a God? Next Sunday, we're going to look at the other question, the starry hosts above, and, and do an attempt to look into the universe and see what we see there that bears witness to God. Talk to some to reference people who, who do this for a living, scientists and such. So here's where we're going this morning, though. I want to argue that your humanity points towards the existence of God. The psalmist David, in Psalm 139, he declares, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, my goal is to really build your faith. We live in a world where there are many forces that would like to tear your faith down. Um, in particular, science has taken a full frontal assault on people of faith and challenged. This morning, we're going to challenge back. We're going to challenge back a little bit, and I hope that that is encouraging to you and, and maybe informative to you. Now, maybe that's not your situation. Maybe you're here this morning because you're kicking tires of faith. You've got questions that need answers, and you're wondering whether you could find them here. And my hope this morning, my goal for you this morning would be that, that you would walk away at the minimum and say, I don't have to check my brain at the door in order to engage in questions concerning faith. Let me say that if that's where you are, you are very, very welcome among us. I want to invite you to consider not just visiting, but linger with us, journey with us, Sundays, in life group or small groups, uh, and, and ask your questions and let us journey with you because we are a people who are journeying in our faith as well. Your humanity points towards the existence of God. You don't need a degree in philosophy to do a uniquely human thing, to think philosophically. Um, my dog does not contemplate the meaning of life. Um, in fact, I am pretty sure that he has no, no inquiry concerning where he came from, uh, nor where he's going beyond the next meal. He's very convinced that he needs the next meal. Um, and he's not contemplating um, whether or not his life will have mattered when he dies. Does not enter his mind. Now, cats, on the other hand, are conspiring to take over the world with dolphins. Um, I have that on poor authority. Um, don't take that one to the bank. Uh, okay, I'll leave you with your cat. So we'll figure that one out. Um, but former atheist Anthony Frew, a few years before he passed away, retired his atheism and wrote a book called There Is a God. Now, that was an extraordinary thing for someone like that to do because he'd written a lot of books saying there's not a God. He lectured around the world on the subject, arguing for it. But listen to what he wrote. He writes, atheism is no longer a logical, tenable, or defensible position to hold. He goes on to say that his inquiry into science, uh, and the further that he went into his inquiry into science, the more he became convinced that the evidence actually pointed toward God rather than away from God. Philosopher David Bentley Hart captures a fundamental shift in this. He says, I do not regard true philosophical atheism as an intellectually valid or even cogent position. In fact, I see it as a fundamentally irrational view of reality, which can be sustained only by a tragic absence of curiosity or a fervently resolute will to believe the absurd. He concludes that atheism must be regarded as a superstition. What happened for both of these men is they were convinced that they had to follow the evidence where it went. And for Frew and Hart, when that evidence went to a place that they actually seriously disliked, they ultimately had to bow to a consistency within themselves to say, however, 
The preponderance of weight goes in this direction, and I must, even at risk of professional reputation and, and, and possibly uh, torpedoing my career, I need to make this shift to acknowledge what I have discovered. So how did they come to these conclusions? Was it because they blindly followed some ancient book? Well, the answer is no. Um, Plato framed it this way. He said, there are two things that lead men to believe in God. The argument from the existence of the soul and the argument from the order of the motion of the stars. Apparently, Immanuel Kant was cribbing, was cribbing Plato. Um, same kind of idea. Your humanity points toward the existence of God. That's one half of what he's saying there. And specifically, your capacity to think, to rationalize, to philosophize, uh, argues toward intelligent design rather than toward natural selection. And there's another piece that comes into our humanity here, and that is your ability to, to be a moral being. The fact that you are a moral being argues for intelligent design, uh, an intelligent architect of, of the universe rather than, rather than natural selection. Morality. You can, I can, believe that there is a difference between right and wrong. We're convinced of it. C.S. Lewis in uh, Mere Christianity, he writes the following. He says, everyone has heard people quarreling. They say things like, how'd you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you some of mine. Come on, you promised. And people say things like that. This is Lewis continuing. People say things like that every day, educated people as well as uneducated, children as well as grown-ups. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. In, it looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play or decent behavior or morality or whatever you like to call it about which they really agree. Pastor Mark Clark, last August, released um, his book, the, the Problem of God, Canadian author, pastors in Surrey, B.C. He writes, we feel like we should care. We know it's wrong to cut people off. We know it's wrong to drop napalm on babies, to, have someone, uh, to, to hurt, hate someone because of his or her race, or to murder innocent women and children. Even if you travel to a culture that takes joy in these things, you would still deem them wrong, would you not? But why? Lewis and Kant say, because there is a law or rule that transcends our cultural values and our human experiences. There is an absolute right and wrong in the universe. He goes on then to say, uh, Mark Clark, where did we get that idea from? And he answers it saying it's stitched into history and cultures and we call it objective moral values. Here's the problem. Macroevolution says all of life evolved from a one cell organism. And it argues that natural selection has resulted in human beings what we are today. But macroevolution cannot explain in any way nearly adequate enough how or why in that process of evolution we would have moral convictions. Natural selection, by definition, requires survival of the fittest. It leaves no room for 
altruism, the idea that there is a higher set of ideals whereby I might disadvantage myself for someone else. Natural selection can't explain the notion that you or I should care for one another, regardless of whether there's some kind of direct or indirect benefit to us. We saw this lived out in 3D color for us this past week. What explains the enormous nationwide pouring out of love and condolences to Humboldt? I mean, it comes in the wake, of course, of a terrible bus crash and we're moved by the tragedy. Now it's killed 16 people associated with the Humboldt Broncos. The story's dominated the news reports for uh, more than the past week. It's lit up social media channels. More than 100,000 people from over 65 countries have given over $10.6 million to a GoFundMe campaign to try to make a difference um, in that situation. Why would someone do that? Why would someone disadvantage themselves taking their finances, taking their time, allowing it to be of concern and consequence to them? Why would they do it? And we would say, well, because it's the right thing to do. Well, why is it the right thing to do? On what basis do we have this conviction that we need to care for one another, that we need to do something in the midst of our broken world? Why should we disadvantage ourselves for someone else if natural selection requires that all we do is, is it, it just the, the, the strongest survive? That, that if that were the rule that would govern the universe... The presence of moral conviction, a presence of, of a sense of right and wrong, lobbies hard for an intelligent designer. That there is a God, and what's more, he's imprinted a need for, to care and a moral code of right and wrong into the hardwiring of his created beings. Mark Clark writes, We do believe in right and wrong. We believe hurting a child is wrong. We believe raping and pillaging the environment is wrong. We believe all races should be equal. That there is such a thing called justice that tells us mercy is better than hate. That loyalty is a virtue. That there is evil in our world. All of these convictions give meaning to our lives. But if there is no absolute right and wrong, all of them go away. They are but a mirage. Meaningless. Weightless. Worth abandoning with every other construct of modernity. Those are the stakes. The Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 2, writes, even when Gentiles who do not have God's written law instinctively follow what the law says, they show that in their hearts they know right from wrong. Built into our moral coding is a, a, a deep sense of fairness, is it not? Right? If you've spent any time with a toddler, you, you get this. You, know, you give one child two cookies and another child no cookie, and you're going to hear about it. <laughs> one pastor commenting on this says, where does my six-year-old get this idea? Where does he get off instructing me about moralism? Quote, say it with me, it's not fair, right? <laughs> C.S. Lewis, Immanuel Kant, they argue that it's because there is a law, there is rule that transcends our cultural values, our human experience, that there must be an absolute right and wrong in the universe. One more moral example. If we're driven by natural selection and survival of the fittest, why would anyone ever sacrifice themselves for someone else? On January 2nd, 2007, Cameron Hollowpeter had a seizure on a subway platform in New York City. 
Three people rushed to help him, including Wesley Autry, who jammed Hollow Peter's jaw open with a pen. He's in a seizure, keep him from grinding his teeth together. Then, as the lights of an approaching train filled the station, Hollow Peter in his seizures tumbled onto the platform in front of the train. Autry jumped in after him, tried to lift Hollow Peter back onto the platform, but the train was too close. So Autry dragged him into a drainage trench beneath the tracks and lay on top of him. The train roared over the two men so close that it left grease stains on Autry's hat. Why would someone risk his life for a stranger? Dr. Francis Collins, prominent biologist who currently serves as the head of the National Institute of Health in the United States, raises the example of the heroism of Wesley Autry as an example of a selfless act that cannot be easily understood as the product of the amoral forces of biological evolution. Dr. Francis Collins was a genome pioneer um, who has significantly advanced scientific understanding, and, and he's a devout follower of Jesus. Uh, Dr. Collins suggests these types of accounts can only be explained by the presence of an intelligent architect who has imprinted human beings with a moral code. We have a hardwiring. We have a conscience that, that speaks to us. And the scriptures describe it as a seared and damaged conscience, but a present one nonetheless. Your humanity points towards the existence of God. Your capacity to think, to rationalize, to philosophize uh, toward an intelligent designer, unique to human beings. Uh, the fact that you are a moral being and that humanity betrays a sense of a deep, rooted sense of right and wrong. It lobbies for a presence of an intelligent designer who has imprinted us with, with moral convictions. Dr. Collins goes on to say, and those moral convictions, and all of this sounds an awful lot like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And finally, just kind of one third, or one more, a third observation of how our humanity uh, argues for uh, the presence of God in our world. Dr. Helen Zwanpol referenced this earlier. Uh, let me just chase after it a little bit. Uh, years ago, Philip Yancey um, took the writings of Dr. Paul Brand um, and wrote two different books over about a 10-year period of time. Uh, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made was one of the books. The other is one called In His Image. They've recently been collected together and published as a, uh, a new collected edition called The Likeness of God in Memory of Dr. Brand, uh, who's gone on to, to be with the Lord. The, the, the new volume... Uh, well, so both of them draw on Dr. Brand's work as a missionary medical practitioner in Africa, most of it in Africa, focused specifically on leprosy, issues that initially would affect people's hands and, and so on and bring uh, terrible uh, disease to people. In, in both books, he, he talks about sort of medical observations that he has made that both bring him to a place of wonderment and worship and inform the idea uh, that, that God is present in his church. Uh, Paul uses the analogy of the church being like the body. And so this medical doctor draws all kinds of really cogent parallels to, uh, to that. Uh, he talks about uh, the remarkable capacity of a bone to heal and how bones are alive with, with living substance in them. Um, he talks about the amazing diversity of the skin, uh, soft parts, rougher parts, different pigments, highly designed according to their need. He draws beautiful parallels to the church. Uh, Dr. Brand writes the following. He says, I've come to realize that every patient of mine, every newborn baby in every cell of its body has a basic knowledge of how to survive and how to heal that exceeds anything I shall ever know. 
That knowledge is the gift of God who has made our bodies more perfectly than we could ever have devised. One of the many examples that he uh, draws on to talk about how amazing the human body is, um, uh, is related to, to use it to hand. He says, Collagen occurs in greater quantity where it is most needed, in those parts that need structure and support. The cheeks and the buttocks have more fat and less collagen, as anyone who's struggled with a double chin or a sagging figure unfortunately knows. But where stress occurs, such as on the palm of the hand, fat is tightly gathered and enveloped by fibrous tissue, he's referring to collagen, in a design resembling fine Belgian lace. I grasp a hammer in the palm of my hand. Each cluster of fat cells changes its shape in response to the pressure. It yields but cannot be pushed aside because of the firm collagen fibers around it. The resulting tissue constantly shifting, quivering, becoming compliant, fitting its shape and its stress points to the precise shape of the handle of the hammer. Engineers nearly shout when they analyze this amazing property for they cannot design a material that so perfectly balances elasticity and viscosity. If my skin tissue had been made harder, I might insensitively crush a goblet of fine crystal as I hold it in my hand. If softer, it would not allow a firm grip. When my hand surrounds an object, a ripe tomato, a ski pole, a kitten, another hand, the fat and collagen redistribute themselves and assume a shape to comply with the shape of the object being grasped. This response spreads the area of contact, preventing localized spots of high pressure, limiting stress, while giving firm support. He goes on. He's got all kinds of examples. Uh, the eyeball. The eyeball continues to defy uh, those who would advocate for evolutionary process, uh, macro-evolutionary process. Um, the problem is this. All of the hypotheses of how an eye would evolve are lacking. Um, uh, we can't find any fossil evidence. Uh, there's no intermediate. You can't see with half an eyeball or a partially developed eyeball. Um, in fact, according to the scientific record, um, eyes first appeared in living creatures 540 million years ago. And, and when they appeared, they were highly advanced. There, there was no sort of stepping stones to it. Um, there, there are several other things about eyes that make them fascinating and, and a, a, an enigma for, um, for evolutionists. Um, not only is the complexity of the eyeball astounding, but so too is its wiring into the brain and the, the processing necessary for it to take what it sees and translate it in a discernible way within, within your brain. Uh, another, another confounding fact is that there, there's no evidence that the eye evolved from lesser forms but the human eye is not the most complex eye known in the animal kingdom. Uh, birds can see shades of colors that we can't see. Bees can see at extraordinary speeds in order to navigate with great precision. Their, 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 their vision in many respects far exceeds our own, and yet there's no evolutionary pathway that would suggest that their eye evolved from ours. And so what you end up with is, is all of these different eyes that had to, if there was evolution, had to evolve in their own lane of evolutionary development. You start putting the, the mathematics to that, the probabilities of present, and it's insane. 
It's so far and above anything that anyone could ever imagine that lucky circumstance would result in one genetic preference or advantage being advantaged and then precipitate and then ultimately evolve. A much more plausible explanation is that there is an intelligent designer who has a moral will and a remarkable, remarkable breadth of creativity and scope for creative uh, genius present seen throughout our world. Now, I don't, I don't expect that if you're a skeptic that I've totally changed your mind here this morning. Um, but I hope that I have demonstrated that you don't have to check your brain at the door to be a person of faith. In fact, in every area of scientific enterprise and discovery and inquiry, there are, there are those who say, in this, in this science, in this biology, in this anthropology, uh, in this philosophy, I actually see it pointing me towards God rather than drawing me away from God. Next week we'll look at the stars and cosmology. If you'd be willing to, to read further, there are some great books available. Just three that I'd pull out of, of a, a grouping that, that I think could be valuable. The Problem of God, I've quoted Mark Clark a couple of times already this morning. Um, particularly on some of the philosophical questions is, is really strong. Uh, the Case for Christ has been reissued, re-released with updated information. Um, Mark Clark and Lee Strobel were atheists who found faith in Christ. Uh, Strobel's book is extremely readable. Um, like it's such an, 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 uh, uh, yeah, an engaging narrative. He talks about inviting people and visiting with them and, and, and so on. And very, very good, especially around uh, the work and person of Jesus, as we've been discussing him over the past couple of Sundays. In the likeness of God, I've referenced that already this morning, um, from a, a medical perspective and the insights, particularly good if you're a believer, um, because he draws, he, one of the things he does really beautifully is he draws analogies from the body to the body of Christ. And that part is particularly inspiring, though the rest of it is really, really exciting as well. Here's my concern, is that, and that, that, that's a that the, church, that the church has initially, I think, been intimidated into silence on some of these subject matters, but, but then more recently been seduced to remain silent with the, the empty promise that if you want to have some kind of, of relevance in our society, if you want to be tolerated in our world, you just got to shut up about this creator stuff um, and, and accept the worldview that is more popularly espoused. Now, the, the problem with that, though, is that the world's is a faulty worldview. It leads away from God, but it leads into destruction. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the church in Rome. Romans 1, chapter 8, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Now, I'm not suggesting that you can argue anyone into believing in God, nor, nor can you argue someone into following Jesus. But you can represent true statements when propositioned by false ones. You can know that there are good reasons as a thinking, rational, digging human being, there are good reasons to believe in God. 
And science is being seen as increasingly pointing people towards God rather than away from him. Maybe one last tidbit. Generally speaking, um, if I were just to ask the question, uh, do scientists believe in God or reject the notion of God? I would have said, well, probably the vast majority of them reject the notion of God. That's what we've been led to believe, right? And yet 2009, May and June of 2009, a survey of scientists uh, that surveyed the members of the American Association of the Advancement of Science. Um, it was conducted by Pew Research Center for the People and the Press, a um, bipartisan organization. They found that just over half of the scientists, 51%, believe in some form of deity or higher power. Specifically, 33% of scientists say they believe in a personal God, while 18% believe in a universal spirit or a higher power. Chemists are more likely to believe in God, 41% rather than 33. Younger scientists, 18 to 34, are more likely to believe in God or a higher power. Now, that might not be all that significant. It's a lower percentage than the general population in the United States of America. If it weren't for the fact that the last 100 or 200 years, we've been told that science would obliterate the need for God and no one would believe in God anymore. And yet, highly regarded individuals in their field, people like genome pioneer Dr. Francis Collins, have actually become strong advocates for God, calling us to attend to what we see as present in the material world as an evidence in and of itself that there is a maker. One last thought. What do we do with doubts? Well, what do you do with those lingering thoughts, those questions that don't seem to have reasonable answers? Dr. Paul Brand offers the following. I hear similar tones in what Dr. Helen Zwanpol shared earlier. He writes the following, only after much research and long periods of reflection was I able to put together what I had learned at church and what I had learned at school. But in the meantime, I determined that my faith was based on realities that could stand by themselves and that did not need to be subordinated to any explanation of science. Either I would discover that evolution was compatible with the God of my faith, or I would find that evolution was somehow wrong and I would stay with my faith. I operated on that assumption for years, during which I was unable to fill in all the blanks about how creation and evolution fit together. In recent years, new understandings of the nature of DNA has greatly strengthened the position of one who believes in a guiding supernatural intelligence. Uh, in his book, The Reasons for God, Dr. Timothy Keller points out the following. He's a pastor, doctor, not a medical doctor. Um, uh, he, he says that doubts are simply a set of alternative beliefs. Here's what he, he says, you cannot, you cannot doubt unprovable Christian belief A, except from a position of faith in unprovable non-Christian belief B. For our encouragement, Dr. Brand um, writes the following. He says, a certain bridge in South America consists of interlocking vines supporting a precariously swinging platform hundreds of feet above a river. I know the bridge has supported hundreds of people over many years, and as I stand on the edge of the chasm, I see people confidently crossing the bridge. The engineer in me wants to weigh all the factors, measure the stress tolerances of the vines, test the wood for termites, survey all the bridges in the area for one that might be stronger. I could spend a lifetime determining whether the bridge is fully trustworthy, but eventually, if I really want to cross, I must take a step. 
When I put my weight on that bridge and walk across, even though my heart is pounding and my knees are shaking, I am declaring my position. In the Christian world, I sometimes must live like this, making choices which contain inherent uncertainty. If I wait for all the evidence to be in, for everything to be settled, I'll never move. Often I have had to act on the basis of the bones of the Christian faith before those bones were fully formed in me and before I understood the reason for their existence. I want to invite you this morning. Will you take a step of faith towards Jesus? Maybe that step of faith would be say, you know, I'm going to read one of those books. You know, or I'll, I'll listen to a podcast. I'm going to post a few in Everything Okay this Thursday. Some links that will maybe be helpful to you. Um, maybe it's coming back next Sunday. It, it's, it's just saying, I'm going I'm to persist in the inquiry. Get to know some people. Journey with them. If there is at least reasonable certainty that there is a God, surely he has the capacity to make himself known. And isn't that the next step then, is to pursue knowledge of him? Maybe that would indicate your next step. Your next step would really just be a simple prayer. God, if you're real, would you show me? That's a very decent prayer that he has answered millions of times. Let me invite you to stand with me. I want to pray for us. The worship team is going to come. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are uh, with us. I have faith in that. I have experienced you. And that witness bears weight in and of itself. But as we look around the universe, and specifically we look at the nature of humanity, we say, wow, fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, knit together with intricacy that marvels the greatest minds of our times. And and abilities which defy any of the, the best minds thinking on evolutionary development, that we would be able to think philosophically, uh, that we have moral coding which cries out against that which is wrong, uh, that our very, the intricacies of our own bodies uh, speak of a complexity and speak of a beauty and a wonder and an intentionality statistical probabilities of which are unthinkable. And so we come back and we say, would you show us? I pray for those who know you, Lord Jesus, who've walked with you uh, for, for days, weeks, years, decades. And we say, show us again. We, we love it when, you, when we see greater revelations of yourself. We see it in scripture. We see it in one another. We see it in our world. We see it as you meet us objectively and subjectively. And we say, thank you. And I pray for those who are kicking the tires of faith, who are asking first order of life questions. And I pray, oh God, that you would visit them in those inquiries and that you would show, you would show them yourself. May they see you in us here. May they see you in, in your world. May they, in this inquiry, find you an eternal life. Thank you for visiting with us. Would you stir our hearts in response uh, through worship and song now? We ask in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.